Welcome back to the Prolific Author Podcast. How is everyone doing today? I hope you've had a great week of writing. Today I have a really fun interview with author Johnny Worthen. I have known Johnny for a long time. Uh, he is based out of Utah, just like I am. He is an award-winning author. He writes several genres and used to be the president of the League of Utah Writers, which is kind of our resident writing organization here. And he and I actually used to operate out of the same publisher years ago before they closed their doors. So Johnny's been doing this for a long time. He's got a lot of experience. And what I love about him is that he has so much fun writing and he just owns his author career. He's always looking to learn more and figure out the next thing. And I just think he's a really good example of a career author. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear from him. He's got some great stories and some great, you know, just gems, experiences and advice for everybody. Before we do that, I just want to let you know that the doors to my author course will be open in mid-June. I am probably going to do a five-day free get your book outlined challenge just leading up to that. So I don't have a link to sign up for that yet, but I will have one probably next week. All right, so it's coming up. It's pretty quick, and I'm really, really excited to open the doors to that. I just want to kind of give you a heads up so that you're looking forward to it in mid-June. All right, let's get started. Welcome to the Prolific Author Podcast. Let's face it, readers read fiction to feel emotion and be transported and transformed. In this ongoing digital revolution, where online marketing is always in flux, the only way to create a sustainable author business and live off your royalties is to write transformational stories, market at every stage of the author journey, and cultivate a loyal audience of readers. Fortunately, there's never been more opportunity to make a living as a fiction author. Hi, I'm Liesl Hill, USA Today best-selling author and story clarity coach. When I'm not dictating my own stories about dragons, serial killers, and dystopian worlds, I help other authors write their own transformational fiction, position them as bestsellers, and market them like pros. Join me on the podcast where I give writing tips, marketing how-tos, story advice, and interviews with other authors who are in the trenches just like you and making it work. We are prolific authors. All right, so we are here today with author Johnny Worthen. Um, Johnny writes lots of books and he and I actually used to be in the same uh, publishing company before it closed its doors. So we've known each other for a long time. How are you doing, Johnny? I'm doing well. Good, good. Why don't you start out by telling everyone who you are and what you write? All right. Uh, my name is Johnny Worthen. I, um, I'm, uh, I'm an alcoholic. No, <laughs> oh, let's see. Um, okay. I'm, I'm an author. Uh, I'm, I'm a, I, let's see. Uh, I'm a, Utah Writer of the Year. I'm the past president of the League of Utah Writers. Um, I write, um, I teach writing at the University of Utah, lifelong learning. Um, I am nine years into my 10 year plan to be an overnight success in this writing business. <laughs> I have uh, written 20 novels, half of those have seen paper. I am, I'm started traditionally published with Liesl and we moved. And, and when I got my rights back from some of that, Mm -hmm. um, I've moved into hybrid just recently. So I've done that. Um, I have, uh, see, I've read multiple genres. I debuted in horror. My bestseller was a young adult characters, paranormal character study, the unseen series. My debut is Beatrice Ellie. I thought it was a love story, but it turns out it was a horror. <laughs> so seriously, it was published by a horror press who I work for now. I am actually an acquisitions editor for Omnium Gatherer Medium in uh, a dark fiction press out of California. And um, I do edits for them and uh, have my own slush pile now, if you can believe it. Anyway, so I also wow. write um, my book, The Finger Trap, One Diamond Quill for Best Book of the Year. That's a contemporary mystery set in Utah. Uh, the 
fourth book, the fourth novel in that series comes out June 15th, 2020. Nice. So that's right there, three different genres. Um, that's a comedy mystery. Um, I have a straight up political mystery called The Brand Demand that's in print. I have, a, I have a literary horror called What a Mortal Hand that's in print. And the big deal is, well, they're all big deals, frankly, all, all these are wonderful. Come um, <laughs> November, uh, my science fiction epic trilogy, Coronam, the first book of Kings, Queens, and Colonies, is released by Flame Tree Press, distributed by Simon & Schuster. So wow. I get, uh, I've hit big five come November. Um, yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I, I get I get launched in London and New York. It's going to be so cool. I just finished the edits. It's so I love this book so much. I love yeah. all my books. Love all my books. Anyway, uh, so that's what I'm writing. That, that's what I, I write. I write. Um, yeah, I'm the idiot that quit his day job to start writing. <laughs> <laughs> but I could. So don't recommend this. Don't do this at home, people. <laughs> <laughs> So can you talk a little bit about like what, how the experience is different when you're doing um, self-publishing versus, you know, you've done the hybrid thing. So self-publishing versus yeah, traditional. It's, it's a, well, okay. Um, I, I had a real, uh, I don't want to say blind spot. Let's just call it prejudice against self-publishing for the longest time. Mm -hmm. And that came because uh, you know, it's, it's easy to, there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of junk out there. See, you know, I, I say it's never been easier to be published, but it's never been harder to be read. And I always leaned toward traditional publishing because, well, among other reasons, I'm a lazy man, but also because <laughs> I, uh, I always thought there was a, there was more fame in that. Um, you're either in it for the fame or the money, I suppose. They say, if you want fame, go traditional. If you want money, go self-pub, go, go indie. Well, anyway, um, that's fine. Daddy, but mostly I want to be read. I want to be read. I don't care, you know, read. So, right. um, what happened is um, I was first kind of slipped into this on accident with uh, uh, with Jollyfish. When Jollyfish was acquired by Flux, um, they were they they were going to grandfather the entire catalog. Now mm -hmm. with Jollyfish at the time, I had my Unseen series of which three books and all three in this trilogy had been released. That's Eleanor, my bestseller, um, one gold quill for best young adult of the year. That was. <laughs> And uh, see, it was Eleanor, Celeste, and David, and th those 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 were doing well. And I just launched the Finger Trap, uh, the book that won the big award. And no sooner had it won the award than we heard that Jollyfish was was folding. So right. anyway, uh, they were going to grandfather them all in, but they were not going to promise they would publish the rest in the series of my adult mysteries. At this point, I had several written, mm -hmm. and I couldn't let this die. So my agent got the rights back, and we started shopping it. Oh, that was hard. That was difficult. It never caught. Um, a lot of there's, you know, there's so many different gatekeepers out there. It is so hard to break into here, even if you have books out there and I was trusted, but some of the things working against me is the book had already been, had already existed. And they look right. at the books and, oh, it didn't sell very well. It was only on the market for like 42 days. <laughs> so that was a problem. So anyway, ultimately in order to keep the series alive, I had to go into it. So right. I set it up and um, that allowed me to bring out that one again, which was nice, actually gave me a chance to correct some of the mistakes that were too. <laughs> and then I brought out Thicker Than Water, which I think is a uh, just a gem of a piece. The book, you know, I, I remember Orson Scott Card saying he wrote Ender's Game in order to get Speaker for the Dead. He wrote that one book for the other one. And that's how I think about, you know, I, I actually wrote The Finger Trap so somebody would notice Eleanor, but The Finger Trap was so much fun. And then Thicker Than Water came out and that is such a good book. I read that and I'm just amazed at the construction of that. Anyway, so then I had these others and I just kept going with it and I'm doing pretty, pretty okay with it. And then just out of nowhere, 
earlier this year, I got a letter from Jellyfish saying, well, they're going to now um, out of print the Unseen series. And I said, that's weird. I'm getting royalties on those. Said, well, okay, we're just going to out of print the paper. Uh, wow, that's that's like a kick. All right. Now, at this point, I've been in this business enough, long enough to know that ebooks are kind of important. Right. So they would give me the rights back to something I couldn't really sell and keep the ebooks. And so luckily the jellyfish contract I went that they were still working under pretty much said all or nothing. So I got the rights back for that. And they gave me right. enough headway that um, I think it was out of print for like 22 hours. So that was neat. So I got those back and running. And so that, um, and that's where I'm at. So at this point, um, all the books that the series, the two series that I've been indie publishing were all originally traditionally published, but the rights have reverted. And so in okay. order to keep them in print in any fashion, I have to. So I got forced into it. However, it's been kind of a good experience all told, you know, I've, I've made some money. It's kind of nice. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm in control of my own marketing. I can, I can take yeah. control. Um, I, nice, still, huh? <laughs> I still really love that the traditional route and hope that and, and really believe that Coronam is going, going to be just a marvelous experience because it's, a, first of all, it's science fiction, you know, it's cool. Right. Um, and I always struggle because I have to reinvent my genre, my audience, because I write so many genres. I should have done a pen name, but like I said, I'm a lazy man. But it's been a good, it's been a good experience. I'm, I'm trying to learn the marketing ins and outs of it. And I've had a lot of great tutors who are very helpful. So I'm, actually, so, so far, so good, yeah. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. So do you find that you do make more money on um, indie or is yes. it about the same? You do? <laughs> yeah, I have to say I do. Okay. Yeah, I do. I do, definitely. Interesting. Uh, because, you know, I'm not cutting it up. And then top of that, I, I can actually market the darn thing. It's, it's right. I can put my attention to it. But also, this, yeah, I mean, I get a larger royalty. I get to move it. I get to action it. I get to promote it. And if um, promoting for a publisher, you're kind of, you know, you're promoting full cost for, 15% if you're lucky. Right. You know? So unless these, you're working with big numbers and you're being released by some, by Simon and Schuster <laughs> and flame tree press, which is a fantastic press. Um, it's uh, it's questionable. So I don't know. I'm, I've still got a couple of books out that I'm marketing that I'm shopping around some young adult that I thought would just go nuts by now, but haven't caught yet. I don't, I think, I think I, I think people hate me now. <laughs> anyway, I've got that. And I even have a, an adult uh, crime thriller I'm shopping, but um, I'm not really that anxious about them anymore because I have a route and I can bring them to life because that's really what, what I'm in the business for is to be read more than, you know, like I said, if I, right. if I needed the money, I wouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Interesting. <clears throat> well, that's good to know that it's, it's really interesting to get people who are doing both and, and kind of get the contrast between the two. Um, and I think you just have to know what you want. I mean, people say it's it's a good thing to go hybrid, but which I think it is, but you also have to just know what you want to get out of it. Yeah, it is. I mean, if I, you know, I'd love to be in that ivory tower and you say, oh yeah, I purchased my first book and went to Pulitzer and I'm set for life. No, Pulitzers actually don't make you set for life. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, um, if you want to keep it going, it's almost required these days. It's, it's, it's like still using a fax machine in the age of email, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you got to follow along with it. So it's, it's been, it's been a very a, a grand learning experience, if nothing else. Um, but it's been much more than that because it does allow, allow me to have so much control over my career and, mm -hmm. and my, and my books, which is, which is hard because like I said, I'm a lazy man. I don't like putting all this time in to <laughs> marketing, but then again, middle is the same way. Yeah. It, um, there's no guarantee 
um, or small press is the same way. Small press right. is hundred percent. You've been there. Yes. You know what we're talking <laughs> about. Yeah. We've got nowhere to go on that if we don't do it ourselves. I mean, they make a little push and they keep it around and they don't, you don't have to worry about it, but um, you should worry about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so it's kind of making me a more well-rounded modern author. Right. Um, I've, you know, some of my heroes did the same thing, you know, Twain, I think Puckleberry Finn was self-published. Mm-hmm. You knew. And now you do. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's uh so it's it's an it's an experience. It's it's a, it's definitely the business side of it, which is kind of not the not the sexy side, but it can be because it feels like um there's a different camaraderie out there. Um it it is a slug fest. There are a lot of us out there. Right. Um sometimes I wonder if there aren't more writers than readers these days. <laughs> so I do my bit by reading as much as I can. <laughs> right, right. Well, and I like that you talked about having a route to go, because I think that's really the, the kind of the secret behind it is you have to test and experiment until you find something that works for your books. But once you do, you can repeat it, you know, and so then it's not so difficult and it's not so daunting to get that marketing done. I think you're right. It's also because I have a living series, the mm-hmm. Tony Flanner series, the finger trap, the uh, thicker than water. The third book is called in the wake of captain Lord. And then the next one that's coming out in June is called the counterfeit connection. That's going to be, that's fun. That takes place in Utah, Sundance. Um, nice. Tony goes to the, uh, goes to the mall. It's fun. You know, he's funny. He's full of sarcasm and, and bad language. It's hilarious. But anyway, <laughs> since it's a living, thriving, growing series, you know, it, it's dead if you don't do this. So I really got right. forced into it and I'm, I'm glad I did because it gives me so much control, but something like Eleanor, I don't know if Eleanor is ever going to get a fourth book. I mm. love that series. The unseen has won, won, won awards. It's got a Kirkus review. Library Journal, definitely my most recognized book by many people. However, it's um it's kind of now just there, so I just want to keep it alive, want to keep it available. Yeah. But so that, so I get the I get actually two sides of it, keeping a series um kind of a, I don't want to call it defunct because it's still live, new covers and things, but it's not growing, and a growing series, and it's it's so they're different animals as well, and finding new avenues and new audiences. I'm afraid, you know, I had some success on Facebook and working on Amazon ads and uh, done a lot of promotions, which have really given it uh, steps up. Um, but it's, you never know, you know, always trying to figure out the new thing. Right. Right. It is a lot to keep up on. Yeah, for sure. Um, so tell me how, how long have you been writing now? Well, like I said, I'm nine years into my 10 year plan. 2012 <laughs> is when um, I looked at my situation and realized where all I ever wanted to be was a writer. And that wasn't there. I got a list of things I wanted to be and my resume read is a list of things I wouldn't do again if under any circumstances. So help me God, you know, <laughs> hated all of it. I've always um, like Tony Flanner and my, my main character. I, I ping pong between jobs. I've never really had a single career that stood out. Um, you right. know, jobs were jobs and um, not, necessarily, yeah, me too. not necessarily life choices. Right. I mean, right. You know, so what do you do? Well, I work in insurance, but that's not really who I am. You know, yeah. anyway. <laughs> so anyway, um, after the last little kind of, dis- it was kind of a, a disheartening moment. I'd, I had, I'd, op- I'd ran a, I mean, I have a master's degree in English and, and uh, American studies and a bachelor's degree in English literary studies and a classics in Latin. So naturally I went into fast food. I owned a restaurant for a while. That was kind of rewarding, but very stressful, very stressful. Right, right. And then that was up in Oregon where I collected all my tie-dye. And then back, and then you know, back in Utah, um, among, I, I, I followed the real estate bubble till it burst. And then I owned, believe it or not, a drug testing company. And that kind of sapped the soul out of me. So when that kind of went away, I just looked at it and said, you know, I'm, I got a war chest. I'm going to try this. 
and I just did it. I jumped off the cliff and uh, things have worked out for me, but I've been very fortunate in that. Um, probably too fortunate in some ways because it's, I don't have the, um, I, I can pick and choose a lot more than I think a lot of authors can because yeah. you know I, I'm, I'm independent at that point. Uh, that's right. not to say I don't want to be here because I still very much need to be read. I really love these books. Um, so any, any bit of validation for any kind of writer, you can do it. So anyway, yeah. So I'd say I've been writing my whole life, which is a uh, familiar years. And, uh, but professionally, I'm now nine years into it. My sons asked me what happens when it's, uh, what happens in 11 years. And I said, yeah. well, then I'll be 11 years into my 10 year plan to be an overnight success. Yeah. I still produce, I've got uh, countless short stories. I, I, you know, I, I several, you know, I at least get a book out a year. Uh, some, some one year I had three books come out, all different publishers. Um, wow. So you never know. So it's, uh, you know, if there's small presses, I'd like to get something bigger. So um, that's something else, by the way, as a hybrid author, I'm allowed to manipulate, not manipulate, to uh, stoke my sales, which would look good for other people trying to buy my other books. And well, yeah, okay, you did all right with this book. Maybe you'll do all right with this one. So yeah, that's it. Because right. I think as soon as any of my books become a bestseller, all of them will be. Yeah. So that's where I'm going with that. So that's that's a, a second Op, a second uh, benefit, if you will, for the hybrid route. Definitely. Definitely. And so, yeah, I've yeah. been doing this and I get involved and I like, I like doing this. It's the, uh, I say it's, I've never had a job that paid less that I enjoyed or that, but I enjoy more than any other job I've ever had. This is a fantastic gig, you know, right. uh, creativity edits. I meet people. I learn so much, uh, constantly challenging me. It's, it's, I love being a writer. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I, I like being a writer. I love being an author too. Authors are neat. Authors are yeah. Cool. You meet some cool people. Hello. You know, <laughs> so, you know it, it's a gang. Not, not all of them are nice. I've met some jerks, yep. uh, but most of them, you know, we're all in this. We're all kind of just journeying together. Yeah. So. Yeah, for sure. So why do you think that you feel so called to call to uh, tell stories? No, oh, I don't know. I think, I think we all emulate our heroes. We try to, you know, um, they say that given a chance, given a choice, you will dress the way you did when you were happiest. And looking at me, since I can, I wear shorts and t-shirts and tie-dye. And so I really like the dead shows and that's who I want to be. And I, you know, that's, that's how I feel comfortable. But I also have, was so moved by writing, by literature, by books, by, by the whole mystique, by, by the knowledge, by, you know, I, I was really, I had my political and my artistic awakening in college. So those books just stay with me. And that's who I wanted to be. I want to be those people. I want to have that effect. I want to be that smart, that knowledge. I want to create those things. And so following in, in the footsteps of those heroes, those, whether it's, you know, Hemingway, Faulkner, some, you know, those are some of the greats, you know, or Alice Walker, um, so many great authors. It just changed me. Um, mm -hmm. I just kind of started doing it. I always started writing a story and then um, I always was always writing something, always creating something, always had that voice and always kept it up. And, I've, and I learned suddenly, I've forgotten at what point that a lot of people don't know how to write. Everyone <laughs> thinks they do, but they really don't. Right. <laughs> you know, well, I'm not going to pay you for that. I, anybody could write a paragraph. No, not really. <laughs> not really. And I'm horrified. <laughs> of that. But I really I wanted to be a hero. So, you know, I wanted to be those people. You know, I I had this terrible. You want, you want to know how not to sell a book at FanX? Sure. Here's your, here's your yeah. pitch. All of my books can be taught in an English class. <laughs> See, that's just, I, you know, I'm a multiple genre author, not because, you know, not because I fell in love with Tolkien or I fell in love with Elmore Leonard or I fell in love with, right. um, 
Jonathan France or something, but I, I follow a theme, right? My master's degree and my bachelor's degree were in literary criticism for crying out loud. I mean, th- this is Derrida and, you know, and Lacan, you know, that's, I, I deconstruct and I love it. Start with the text and you see all these different meanings of symbol and symbolized and, and sign and symbol. I mean, you go deeper right. and you understand the greater thing. So the theme of it, so I was doing autopsies on things. It never even occurred to me, how was this written? It's what is it trying to say? Uh-huh. And that has always stayed with me. And so when I write something, I start with the idea of what questions do I want to address? And then it forms around it. That's why I started with, a, I wanted to explore the idea of love. And so, but the darker side, the, the, the jealousy side of it, and that's where Beatrice was born. And then with uh, the finger trap, I was just experimenting with what a voice driven thing could be and actually autobiograph, autobiographing of it and, and that one until I realized Tony, the finger trap is where I realized I want to do this. Because I actually, at that point, I already had the had books in the market um, shopping. But that's where I wanted to be. And I just, I liked the experience. I liked losing myself in there. Um, and then you, have, then you have those moments that really make it worthwhile. Those moments when you write the end, mm-hmm. which is unparalleled. Believe it or not, even saying, oh, I've sold a book. It's in print. I'm holding a copy. Those are wonderful. But never is there a, a rush as finishing a book ever. It's a two-day, my feet haven't touched the ground kind of high. <laughs> and so that, that's, that does it too. Yeah. I, and uh, you think also, I, in a way, uh, I, I think it could be mortality as well. I want to scratch the wall, you know, rehearse mm-hmm. for so short. But if I leave a few words behind, maybe somebody will read that. I'll have some impact that something that I have learned can be carried on a bit. So I, I have that kind of. I don't know, narcissistic idea that somebody will want to read what I had to say, or that I've, you know, or that I can slip in these important ideas into an otherwise comic scene, or that I can, and like in what immortal hand I can explore the idea of God and see, you know, the nature of, of, of renewal, you know? Yeah, I know. I know. Right. That, that one just, yeah. So I, I'm, you know, it's a calling, you know, it's a, been a calling for me. Um, occasionally I'll put myself in a position where I have to write something. But for the most part, I kind of just write what I want to. And right. then I shop it, which is not necessarily the way to do it. The, the authors that I, the most successful authors I know have always, they, you know, they, I sold it. I got a 10 book deal with a random house. Oh yeah. What are you writing? They haven't told me yet. <laughs> ah, ah, oh. And I'm not making that up. That's the kind of thing that, you know, at a certain level you get into. And then, then that kind of becomes a craft. And so I'm still, I'm, I'm still glassy, glossy eyed enough, glassy eyed enough to be looking at this as an art. Right. I, I, you know, I, 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 it's, it's, so I write things that don't fit neatly into any genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I write experimental, like I have a book uh, called Things Bequeathed, which everybody wants to call a young adult, but I can't see it. It's, first of all, it's got a 14 year old protagonist, which should be a middle grade by definition, but right. it's not a middle grade. She, you know, first of all, you know, she goes through some serious things. It's my daddy issue book, I call it. And she goes through <laughs> daddy issues and she has a little demon friend that helps her. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's got that kind of sensibility, but it's still got a lot of heavy stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Um, coming of age in a different way. And 14 is like, don't touch 14, supposedly. I didn't know. Huck Finn was 14. <laughs> I thought I'd be okay. But no, you know, that was a tough one. But that's that's hard to put in there because in a way it's it's literary. I, I actually have to compare right. it more to uh I mean, I, I'm gonna I don't know, just so I've 
you know, I don't know, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird comes to mind because I'm working with those ideas, those kind of ideas. Okay. I, 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 I do feel weird comparing myself to the greats, but, you know, she, <laughs> Harper Lee really should talk to me. No, <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to do that because I come from that angle. So I want to explore right. ideas. I want to say therapy and everything, but it's so rewarding. And so, and sometimes I really, really connect with other people. I say authors bleed on paper and then try to sell the bandages, right? <laughs> I like that. So sometimes I find people who need, need the bandage. Yeah, Good. for real. Sometimes the bandages can actually become pretty, uh, pretty valuable and pretty lucrative down the road. They can indeed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, that's, it's so great to hear your experiences. So how do you, how do you go about your writing? Tell me about your process and how do you oh, oh, that's craft your plots one. and your characters and all of that? Well, okay. Well, the, um, I, I never, I took a few writing classes in college and that's really where I did it. So after that, I went to the real world and I tried the job. I got, I got a leap on the job experience. Um, anyway, but so when I when I approach writing now, um, you know, there's always the germ of an idea. And most ideas germinate for about a year, two years, taking notes. You know, I could keep a list of just concepts that I want to work on one day. And when I start actually writing it down, I try to, I try to have, um, like I always, each project is different, of course. Um, but I try to isolate what it is that I'm going to be writing about anyway. Um what a mortal hand I knew I was going to go to task on some really heavy metaphysical stuff. I had originally envisioned it as a much as a lighter book than it came out as, but at the end, I, I, I kind of, I, I just lost, um, you know, had a loss in the family and it was very much affecting me. Um, and uh, it's just like, you know, how, how do, how do I get around this? You know, good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. This doesn't make sense. So anyway, I started working right. on that and then, um, the pieces just started falling together. And ultimately I had, um, I realized I, I start, um, with different pieces, I, I, I don't pants, so to speak. I don't do that. Okay. I, I always, at least I try to know where I'm going to be, where I'm going to end. I always have an end out there. So I know where I'm going to begin beginnings. It'll generally speaking, beginnings kind of just bubble up for me a lot of the times, because it's just the trick is holding back, not putting in. Right. right. Uh, but I know where I'm trying to get to. I'm going to get to that moment. I want him to face this question. Sometimes I don't know necessarily which way he's going to jump or the character's going to jump, but I know that is the moment I want to get to. And so the writing kind of goes from there. And then between here and there, I will imagine a series of scenes. I know a lot of people like the um, seven act or sorry, seven points plot structure, the 12 point mm -hmm. ziggurat, the 15 point save the cat, the 26 point uh, 26.5 marathon. I don't know how long is a marathon <laughs> anyway. <That's right. laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't do that, but I, I, I consider everything a three act structure, which is a beginning, a middle and an end and everything's in the middle. Um, and, uh, but I'll, I will create a series of scenes and each scene should address either. Um, usually it's a thematic scene. I want to explore some element of choice. Um, what a mortal hand I was arguing. I was, I was looking at the concepts of lies and good and evil and and how and, and those kind of things so each scene would kind of have a level of that and as he fell deeper and deeper into madness some of the scenes would evolve and i'd slide new scenes in between so i'd start with a scene list at least to what i consider oh 30 percent out and then by the time i'm halfway through that i'll have another bunch of scenes coming out after that and then i at some point i just catch momentum and the thing just comes out right um other books i've had some really really tight um I've, I experimented with this. I really, really tight outlines. 
and I, and I wrote it and, but I tell you that was hard writing because I didn't enjoy the process as much mm. when I, when I was really following along. Um, um, but I, the book that came out of it's extraordinary. And right. uh, once I stepped away from it and came back to it, I loved it. I'm not gonna tell you yeah. which one it was because, <laughs> but you know, so, and um but usually I work around with ideas and I try to give myself enough moving pieces early that I always have some place to jump to with, with Tony Flanner. He's just, I can just follow him where he wants to go. He, once the characters are developed, by the way, this is something that I don't know. It comes to sound stupid here, but once the characters are developed, they kind of do their own thing in a lot of ways. You know, if I'm ever stuck, I'll just put my characters in a room and let them talk and they'll tell me where they need to go, what they need to do, what, you know, what's happening. And that's the point I want to get to. Sometimes I got to read them back, um, but for the most part, uh, I can kind of listen because they're still part of me that can go along with it. Um, I try to, um, some things, since I am an American and I have been uh, absorbing literary theory and story structure from my earliest breath, hell, commercials have three-act structures. Um, mm -hmm. It just naturally comes out that way. And then sighting right. incident, I try to get to. Um, when I'm writing mysteries, which I very much like, um, it's, it's a much simpler process because I just need to follow the clues myself. I know what clues need to be put in there since I know who did it. And that is key. Mm -hmm. um, and I know how, you know, kind of know where it's going to be. Um, that allows me not to take too many missteps. When I, uh, at times I have pants pretty heavily and there's a lot of rewriting involved. And right. as I say, I'm a lazy man. So that's, <laughs> uh, so that's the process. But the, the biggest issue, um, it's not necessarily, it's, it's lately anyway, is um, the pandemic's really took, taken a toll, took in a little bit, I, you can use that, taking a toll on my creativity <laughs> time, right? Um, where I, you know, you, you do, you have to come into a quiet room or, or less noisy room and you write. And yet not having too much of that is just a, a drain on me. And it's been difficult for me to be very productive during the pandemic. I, I have been productive, but not what I used to. I used to... Um, I usually try to get three books out a year and this year, uh, COVID, I think I got one, not yeah. great. Uh, and for the, and the first time in my life, I had a start that didn't finish and I'm mm. embarrassed about that. It was my 21st start. I had a rule that I finish what I start. So I started one of them and, and I realized, okay, I'm don't have this one. I, I know where I'm going. I know all the pieces. I just can't, I can't connect it. I'm not, I suddenly lost interest in the story. And that's something that I've also kind of, come to terms with is um every process is different i've noticed no two you know you, you know that no two authors have the same path right no two people have the same process but i tell you no two projects have the same process mm -hmm. some process some books very much are get up every morning write my words and i try to write 1666 words a day that's the <laughs> nanorimo number right. i know i can hit that i can do that um at least because i have proof i've done it um <laughs> and then when i get going it's two three thousand um but so I, that's my goal. And yet each project is different. Some books would just come out. Some books, I honestly just had to hold back. Other books were pulling teeth for a while. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's, it's tricky. This, the project I'm working on now is a horror. Uh, and it's, uh, I'm, trying a new th I'm trying new things, so, which, which is helpful. But it's um, a lot of distractions have come up and dragged me down. However, I still find myself thinking of the book every day, right. working a little bit on it. So I, I, I have to say that it's still in progress, but I'm not hitting my words like I used to. Hmm. So also, um, I, I work, I seem to work well in coffee shops and I don't Do have you? coffee shops anymore. Those, those are my favorites. I don't know why. Right. 
enough out of here. Like this nice quiet study. Can't get much done in here. No. <laughs> Can't even edit in here. Really? Yeah. I just got to a major edit and I just did it on my laptop on the couch. Oh, but interesting. The thing is, once you're focused, you're out of the space anyway. You're wherever you are in the story. Once, right. you, get, once you get into the groove, but um, boy, the quiet of the house is always something to do. So anyway, <laughs> I you, you keep pressing on. And I had a, a, a there was a, a speaker um, and we had, uh, boy, God, crash on the name here. Um, Tim Wagner, who wrote Writing in the Dark. He's a horror writer. Great book, by the way, Writing in the Dark. A few writers out there recommend it. Um, okay. Anyway, one of the things I think he said was, uh, it's okay to forgive you. It's okay not to write for a while. It's okay to take a rest. It's okay to forgive yourself. And all these things are so true because, you know, think, oh, I'm not producing enough. And that's that's a tricky thing because I was really holding myself up to a high standard. Once you quit your job, you got no excuse not to be productive. So I did that right. for nine years, right? But now it's like, it's a little harder because I don't have as much to say, or I'm afraid of repeating myself or all the things that were really eating at me before I've kind of expressed. I had uh, 20 books that needed to be written. I've written them. So now I'm kind of going back and picking up some of the things that I haven't necessarily, I'm, I'm finding new things to write about. And it's not the same level of energy, if you will. Okay. I, I don't, you know, because it's also easy to repeat yourself at this level of your career, right? Stephen King is, I think, has written The Shining three times now. It just calls it different <laughs> things. Um, and I don't want to do that because I find myself finding up, creating a scene that said, gosh, this is familiar. Where I, oh, yeah, I had the same scene over there. Oh, yes. Tony did this in, in, what, in, in the finger trap. So anyway, that's I, I went on a tangent there. But mostly <laughs> um, I, I try to keep track of my words per day. I try to know what I'm going to write each day. It's a good idea if you can, to read what you wrote the day before to get yourself into the mood, hopefully it's worth reading. And that always gives me a little bit of a confidence. If I can re read what I wrote the day before and there was a good line in it, a good turn of phrase, that always gives me the confidence to move on and continue on with it. Um, and then you write. I try not to do too much editing early on because sometimes I have been there, even though I have a plan where things have changed later on. In one of my books, I knew how the end, I had a, the ending wrong. Hmm. I always saw this character as battling the villain in the rafters of a burning building. And that just made no sense. By the time I, I saw it, <laughs> I saw it about halfway through, said, that can't happen. This is, this character does not work that way. This character works by lying. So she must lie. So anyway, <laughs> okay, I'm, 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 I'm tangent again, but, but that's how I, that's how I work. That's how I work. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I, I really liked a lot of what you said there. Um, I mean, I, I'm actually kind of a hardcore outliner and I teach outlining to people, but I also tell them, I don't know, I think there's this, this misconception among writers that if you outline, you have to stick to your outline. And I don't think that's true at all. I think the outline is a, is a jumping off point. And, and like you said, you always want to have enough of an idea that you know where you're going so you don't get stalled. But if you have a moment of clarity or a light bulb moment, yeah, totally deviate from your outline if it's going to serve your story, you know. Well, the thing is that an outline gets done. And that's one of the problems that I had with that second, with that story I had, had to let go. I never had a solid enough outline. I had mm. the first third of it. And then I thought that would take me. And that's how it's often worked before. But for this next project and the one I'm working on, I've def, I've done a lot more with that because that at least gives me that, that it, I'm, I'm liking it better. Yeah. I honestly think if, if I, I've never was a whole pantser, but some of my best works have kind of come out that way. Some, some right. works have been more than others, but as we, as I get older, um, as I write more, it's the way to do it. Keep teaching it. Yeah. That's the way to, I, I teach it too. And I just need to listen to, I give very good advice, but seldom take it. You know? <laughs> 
do as I say and not as I do. Precisely, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and actually the more authors I talk to, I think most people start out pantsing just because it's our first book. We don't know that much about writing, you know, and people who want to turn it into a business at some point, they realize you have to do some planning or you're not going to be able to make a living doing this. So again, it just depends on what exactly you're going for. Um, Yeah. Well, if I, the business thing made sense because I remember I was at a I was at a Comic Con panel and there was a, talking about pants and plotting and one of the authors says I was a hardcore pantser my entire life. Then I got picked up by a by a by a publisher and they wanted to see what my next book was about. And they wanted to see an outline by June. Mm-hmm. Boom! It said I could not, then you know the rules have changed. Right. And so now there's no other way to do it. So yeah, whether it's a business or it's just a a professional uh, calling card, you have to do it at some point. Right, right. Well, and the other thing that I think is really funny, and I I have no judgment about this, I just think that it's a funny thing that a lot of authors have is that we have so much stubbornness about our own writing process. So there are so many people who are pantsers and just refuse to believe that they can do anything else. And, you know, if that's what lights them up and that's what they want to do, then by all means do that. But it's also not a matter of you can't do that. It's just that you don't want to for whatever reason, or you don't prefer that, or you don't like it, but it's possible to teach your brain to do anything. So I just always kind of have to laugh when people say, I'm a pantser, I don't work any other way. My brain doesn't work that way. And it's like, <laughs> but but you could probably make it work that way under the right circumstances. I, I'm just saying, <laughs> you don't have to. Oh, but... <laughs> you can. And the thing, one of the things also is, uh, as soon as you're aware of this and you start writing, you start looking, you start reading other books and you become aware of it. I've... You become aware. This guy does is a pantser. Stephen King, it, pantser, <laughs> all over it. I love that book. The first third of that book I would put up with, I, Stephen King was, the first third of it is unbelievably great. Just some of the best writing I've read in my life, and I'm pretty well read. The middle is, meh, the last is, oh, goodness, what happened here? I mean, he begins with a creepy clown, and he ends with a spooky space spider. Make those two meet. Anyway, so that, that's, <laughs> and I, I notice it in mysteries when the author doesn't know who did it early on, because I, you know, I, I was asked to do a Ted talk on, on this and um, it got canceled because of the COVID, but I was asked what I was oh, going to no. talk about and pantsing versus plotting on a spiritual level. Okay. Hear, hear me out. Hear me out. I didn't get a chance to give this. I'll give you my, my, my brief kid. Yeah. When I was writing what a mortal hand and I was understood and I was contemplating the idea of nature and God and life and all this. I, and I, it occurred to me because I'm, I'm in this dialogue is God a pantser or a plotter? And if he's a pantser, what a horrible world. <laughs> I'm sorry. That just seems terrible that he's making this up as he goes along. You but, want to think there's a reason for this character dying in the first act. You yes. want to think that there's a reason that all of it, if you just have to be alert enough and eventually it'll all fall into place and it'll all make sense. Since I do tend to write mysteries, fair play mysteries, um, a lot of those, I've written more of those than anything. Um, I'm very aware of that. And the uh, red herrings have to be explained as much as the regular thing. And when you reach the end of a book that is done this way, that has been planned and all the pieces are connected, there is it is so much more rewarding, right? Yes. Yes. And you can do that so much easier if you're plotting along. Right. And if you just make it up as you go along, well, okay, I'll introduce a character in the last act. Oh, mm-hmm. you. you know? Yeah. Well, that's so, when you get into like the deus ex machina, like they obviously just came up with something. But no, I, I totally agree. And, th- and that's a good mm-hmm. segue to the next thing I want to talk about, because I think when you plot, you can, you make the story, like you said, more interconnected and more cohesive. And you can, you know, the human brain is, is 
we're, you know, conditioned to look for patterns yes. in anything. And so when a reader, I mean, most readers don't even pick them up consciously. It's a subconscious thing, but they get to the end of the story and they don't even know why they just loved it. And it just spoke to them. And it's because it was planned so well. And because the first chapter mirrored the last chapter and there were so many, you know, foreshadowings and um, symbolism and all this different stuff in it. And so, you know, it's not really about whether we like to write that way. It's gonna it's gonna connect with the reader that way much more deeply. And I know I've actually attended classes that you've done on symbolism and about using it purposely and using it a lot. So what can you tell us about that? Well, it's the same ideas. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it's creating a satisfying connection. It's still the same thing. Since I write, since I do kind of come with an I write from an idea standpoint. When you know some, I I think writing to theme is a complete luxury you don't have to every book will have one and if it's there it'll always be there in the background since i was trained to find them i'm there but when you're working with symbolism i mean everything is a symbol it's communication and i i teach uh the reading writing spectrum uh reader writer spectrum so a writer creates something and the reader brings something to it it's never a one what you never all the way there the reader's got to bring something to the table even if it's just knowledge of the language right, right? But also that one word defines another, defines another. It's, it's this group. So anyway, you, um, you want to let the reader get involved. The more the reader can get involved with your story, the more involvement they have, the more it'll mean to them. If you're filling it with adverbs and adjectives and every description possible, and you're not leaving the reader a lot of room to really imagine, to work with their brains, they might still have a good read and a good experience, but it's not going to stay with them. Now that's kind of the mental margarita or the, uh, the, the Marvel movies, if you will. What was the what was the second Avengers about? Anybody? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but um, and then there's <laughs> books and stories that actually you have to that are, might be a little harder to get into, but stay with you anyway. Uh, right. But the idea of symbolism is that um, behind that, behind every, every everything is a symbol, but there's resonance in those things, and if they can keep coming back, and it, it's it's that same kind of subconscious connection where they know the story is fulfilling and satisfying when they get to the end because all the pieces were there to begin with and they, even though they did they never consciously understand that they're reading a story about um uh, uh, reading a story about promises for example uh, blind squirrels about promises everything kind of echoes and kind of comes off with that and so the final twist makes sense because of that and the uh, and the symbol of the promise you know, wedding ring promise that I might use in one scene or the promise of a degree in another that never paid off or the promise of uh, I made a promise, a commitment to myself, I'm going to keep it and how those different things happen. That's important. And you can, and you carry on an idea in every way you can. Since every letter line is a, is a symbol of some kind, using other symbols and, and themes within your story are just required. Um, and, right. and you tap into a reservoir of previously understood connections, whether mm -hmm. it's uh, sometimes the connections are built right within the books, like uh, the, the Mockingjay in, in, in Hunger Games. So that's a symbol she creates. And it is a very effective, well-rounded, complete symbol that just looking at that one symbol and understanding where that bird came from, how it mated with another bird to become this uh, resistance bird tells you the entire history of that world. It is an extraordinary piece. And then again, you could have something like uh, the plow on in my Antonia, where it's a symbol of cutting the earth and new life and everything. And that becomes, that kind of sums up the whole thing in one simple image. Then you could borrow symbols of 
somebody got their hair cut and could no longer be an effective fighter. You're going back to the Bible and, and you bring right. this other information in there. So um, I'll, I'll make a joke, you know, I, I, I play upon cultural literacy all the time and that plays upon shared symbolism. Uh, somebody finds, I found the one ring, give it to me, my precious, you know, <laughs> you make the connection. And what you've done right. is you've asked the reader to make that connection within their head. I know this sounds very basic, but it's not. You, you, you bring up a symbol or something and you you will you are you are playing on that. What's the word of playing on that? Um, trading. That's it. You are trading on their knowledge of certain things. So mm -hmm. uh, a road has a certain idea behind it. Uh, a, um, a rings are are very very powerful. Churches, graves, all these things you can they, you, they don't come unencumbered, and you can actually trade on that because you don't have enough words in the longest book to get all that information in there. So the reader's got to bring more. So you encourage them to bring their knowledge of the Bible, bring their knowledge of other things they've read. Um, jokes and are really the same idea, but literary fiction is the same idea. If you have absolutely no idea um, about certain references, Moby Dick or something, um, the story shouldn't stop for you. You do get it. Do get that subtle connection with the author. Stephen King's telepathy, as he calls re reading, the telepathy has happened. And the reader is more engaged. You have more of a connection and a better understanding of it. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I always look at Annihilation, any uh, tough movie. Um, if you've ever watched the science fiction with Natalie Portman, anyway, it was based on a movie, a book called uh, Area X. Great movie, but it's very hard to get into. Yeah. But if you do work on it and you understand the symbolism of annihilation and all its different levels, particularly the psychological ones. And you understand what, and there's a very subtle scene in that book, in that movie where she is set, where we see the couple and in a way the movie could be about um, a breaking up of the couple instead of aliens. It's about a, an affair and a breakup, but she's sitting there reading a book called the eternal life of, uh, of lacks. I forgot the name. Anyway, it's uh, she. Uh, what's what's the name of the book? I just read it. Anyway, it's a book about immortality and the soul and and uh, cells that have never don't have the uh, the the marker to die. Uh, Henrietta Lacks. That's it. And these cells are still alive. And she died in the fifties, forties. They're cancer cells, and they're still used. But it's interesting because that actually is a symbol of the entire movie and a theme within it. And those kind of subtle things which go through it, whether if, if, if you know the book, it, it resonates. If you don't, the, the movie carries on a different thing. Um, so there's a higher and a lower levels you can kind of get the perception of. I watched the movie a dozen times and I get something new out of it every time. That to me is great literature. Um, anyway, Bye. that's what I was talking about. So symbols, but, by, but as soon as I made that connection, I had one of those wonderful satisfying aha moments, you know? And that is <laughs> yeah. what we want to get to. That's the end. That's the payoff. That's the laugh at the joke. A, a joke is A, B, C minus B. They enter, they, they figure out the, they figure out the missing part, fill it in themselves and it gets a giggle. It's, 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 it's the same idea as symbols. So that's, that's where I'm going with that. That's a long way to say what I'm talking about there. See, this is why I write multiple genres. How do you put this in one genre? Yeah, I write young adult uh, you know, character studies. I don't know. I did that. <laughs> but move on to another question. That's probably too long. I apologize. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I totally know what you mean, though. Um, I actually recently just did a, a little training on 
like epic one-liners that kind of follow the same what you were just saying like take something that they would have to have read the whole book or the whole series to understand and make them make the connection because that's what yeah that's what drives the aha moment and can create a lot of satisfaction is when they make those connections so I think I think that takes a lot of skill as a writer to do I don't think most first-time writers even think about that but as you get going along that's how you create better fiction I, I think it's know? training the mind as soon as you're in there and you start doing a lot of it it kind of just becomes organic in, in my book, Cornum, mm -hmm. for example, the idea behind that is, you know, there are a couple of things, you know, usually it's a bunch of things happen at once. I had just read the story of the of Roanoke, the lost colony of Virginia, right? And I didn't like the ending. Uh -huh. <laughs> I didn't like how that one ended. I love the background stuff. Lee Miller wrote a fantastic book about it. And I loved that. And then um, I looked at that moment in history around then and realized this was the birth of a lot of our troubles. This was the beginning of the slave trade. This was the beginning of, of, of colonialism. A lot of bad things began in the 16th century. So I started thinking about working on that. And I said, well, what else, what other options are there? You know, what's your utopia, Johnny? I thought about it. I don't have a utopia. I couldn't think of the perfect life. But you know what I did get? A better one. I could at least visualize a one a little better than what we had now. Okay, so that then becomes my end point. So then I started thinking, how do I, how, and all these different pieces and all these different characters are swimming in my head. And I know what I want to talk about. I want, and it starts form. And, and when you write fantasy or speculative fiction, you can take honest, real events like Roanoke, like, like the Spanish Armada, and you can twist them away in a way to reinvent, to revisualize them, to fit your, to fit your um, agenda. Now, historians do this too. They just do it sneakier. So I didn't. I said it in the future, right. 3000, year three, 3500, way in the future. Earth is gone. We're around new planets. And um, the symbols are still there. And the ideas are still mm -hmm. there. And I explore these ideas. And I didn't necessarily come up with each and every connection of this and that, but they organically came through. Once the, once, once, right. once the project took, took root, I could kind of see what needed to have happen here. Um, since I was working in such epic scales, I could bring up all those things from the slave trade to the role of the church, to the role of, of kings, to the role of the peasants, all of this major turmoil I could then expand upon. Um, and um, I, I, I let myself have, oh, I don't know, 15 point of view characters in that book, something along those lines. Um, <laughs> But it was necessary. And the whole thing carries on with a series of scenes. And so like there's one you couldn't put on a seven point plot structure. You just couldn't. Um, I forgot where I'm going with this, but mostly I'm just saying that this became um, organic. You know, the symbolism, right. the understand that you need to have this because in the back of your brain, you're working with archetypes anyway. Elizabeth Gilbert. I think it was Elizabeth Gilbert. Yeah, Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote... Uh, uh, Eat, Pray, Love has a fantastic book called Big Magic. Anyway, she also has, if those of you who don't want to go read that, go look at her TED Talk. And uh, if I can paraphrase that, she talks about writing. And in it, she talks about uh, one of the things that, that I remember that very distinctly is the Romans didn't put their names on their works because they had, it was a genius. Genius in the form of another entity. They were just a conduit. They didn't act, they didn't, they didn't, claim ownership over this because they were spoken to by an alternative force. Okay. The muse, if you will. Right. <laughs> and it sounds so 
sounds like such crap, but it's not. There comes a moment where I honestly, I'm taking dictation, right? And that's where you want to get to, in my opinion. And if you can get that, and that's my best books have always had that, where there's just moments where it's just flowing on its own, where there, an idea has come through and it is kind of, it almost comes ready built. I just have to assemble it. It comes, comes in all the pieces, I just have to assemble it. And uh, that's the idea is that you can, and, and that's part of the reasons why sometimes I think I waited too long to write this one story and the muse left and found somebody else. Probably, yeah, yeah. I don't know, Dan Wells, maybe him, I don't know. <laughs> so if he comes out with that story next year, you'll know what happens. Mine. Mine, mine, mine. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So um, tell me this then, if you could take a, you know, six hour plane ride sitting next to any author, living or dead, who I would thought it about be? that. Um, Hunter S. Thompson at his peak. The plane would have to land before we got yeah. anywhere. But that would be the <laughs> trip to take. If you don't know Hunter S. Thompson, he wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Fear and Loathing in, in the Kentucky Derby. Uh, he was uh, a social critic and a, uh, and, and a crazy mm -hmm. man during the 60s and 70s. I think he'd be the most interesting. I mean, I think Hemingway could be a schmuck. Um, I met Tim Dorsey, so <laughs> he was high on the list. And I met Tim, so that's cool. Elmore Leonard, I would have liked to talk to. And uh, Ursula K. Le Guin. Right. Had, nothing but more respect. Every time I learn more about her, I have more and more respect for her. As a matter of fact, she gets a dedication for Kings and Queens. I dedicated to Lee Miller, Naomi Klein, and Ursula K. Le Guin. Ursula, Ursula did that famous, I famous, well, anyway, she, she's just great. If I don't know Ursula K. Le Guin, look into her. She's, she's just, if, yeah. if nothing else, she's at least in a good example of how you can try to use your art for good, if you will of huh. creating a pithy speculative fiction. That's why I, that's why I dedicated the book because right. I'm trying to envision a better way. So I don't know if anybody's going to read this book says, Oh, I have learned the evil of my ways. I am going not to attack this. <laughs> I don't know. It's not the way it works, but it's a good, it's, you know, right. it's a good ride. So I, I, but anyway, Hunter S Thompson would be fun. I, I probably couldn't keep up with him and his smoking would get a little <laughs> old after a while and it's slurring would be bad, but man, I at least have a story. I'd have such. Yeah. The time I spent For six sure. hours, Leonard S. Thompson, and we had to land in Guam. <laughs> All right. Hey, the landing would be half the story right there. <laughs> yeah, if, if you know Hunter, yeah, he's great. <laughs> he's dead, though. Notice how many authors didn't make it to old age? Yeah. Yeah, he's one of them. I mean, all of them. We got Virginia Woolf, Ernest Hemingway. I think F. Scott Fitzgerald drank himself to death. Yeah. Stephen King avoided the, the Stephen King's doing all right, but he got hit by a truck. Yeah. Uh, he uh, sort of cheated death, but it kind of came for him, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm curious who you'd spend that plane ride with. Oh, yeah, there are so many. Um, <laughs> one would definitely be Robert Jordan because he has influenced me so much. But I, yeah, I could name 10 or 15 off. You know, I would love to talk to, um, well, let, let's put it this way. I would love to talk to um, yeah, the Telltale Heart. Wait, which one? The Telltale Heart. Um, oh, Edgar Allan Poe. Allen Poe. Yeah, just to ask him like how he died. Like, what the heck happened, dude? I just want to know. You know? <laughs> know yeah, Eep would be good. Eep, Eep, I call him Eep. We're like this. I love Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, he'd be good. He's, I, I consider him the greatest American author. He invented two genres, you know. Right, right. Detective mystery and horror as we know it today. Yeah. And I, you just kind of wonder like what his personality was like, you know, like how did he come across in a conversation? I know, yeah. I think he was probably, I understand he, well, the rumor is he froze to death drunk. Somebody else yeah. said he was beat up by canvassers trying to get his votes. Uh, 
I don't know. What was what was the story of that John Cusack movie? How did he die in that one? He played oh, Edgar Allan Poe. I think I he know. was poisoned ah, in that. If I, I I watched it, but I, I kind of don't remember what happened at the end of it. Um, but yeah, it's just like the famous mystery around his death, you know. Yeah, Edgar Allan Poe would be awesome. That would be pretty good. Be pretty good. <laughs> awesome. I mean, you know, it's um, you know, it's it's the whole process is strange. I I go, you, my last Tony Flanner. Um, the counterfeit connection which comes out in June. I guess I'm pitching it. I'm, I'm plugging it. <laughs> yeah, um, go for it. The theme of that is is uh, uh, counterfeiting and uh, imposter syndrome, mm. something that a lot of creatives know about. And yeah, all creatives, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that was what I was wrestling with when I wrote that book. And so every every mystery, every angle has to do with counterfeits, whether it's counterfeit this or it's counterfeit people, counterfeit ideas, why you see yourself, and. Um, I like that book because when I, I read, you know, reading it again, having it out there, I realized that Tony never actually solves his own counterfeit. He, he gets a good <laughs> moment. He comes out of it for a while, but it's only for a while. Right. Um, but that's part of it. And I, I, I hate it. Do you, you ever get to thinking that I wonder if I, all my best work is behind me. I'll never <laughs> write anything as good as that again. And then you get some validation, like big release. You go, oh my God. I still have it, you know, and that that's part of it. It's just validation, you know. Right. I, I think that's what the what being an indie author offers more of, because if you're if you're chasing it, um, the gatekeepers, you're it has nothing to do with your writing. Mm-hmm. It, well, something to do with your writing, but it really has more to do with the market. Right. They won't, you know, or they had a bad bagel that morning and they're not into the slush pile. Right. And it is, and the word arbitrary is more powerful is better than subjective. It's arbitrary. Um, mm-hmm. and if you write something where do you, you know, how do you ever get validation if you write something unusual, you know, uh, right. Frank Herbert and Dune, do you know the story of that? Yeah. Or I well, mean, do you mean how he wrote it? No. Yeah. Who published it? No, I don't. He couldn't get, he couldn't buy a, he couldn't get anything. Chilton published it the first time. Chilton. Chilton is famous for uh, publishing how to fix your Mustang. <laughs> they wrote car repair books. They stepped out of their uh, of their comfort zone to do a science fiction because they liked it. Frank Hurt and he couldn't get he couldn't he couldn't get arrested in New York. Yeah. Um, the Hunt for Red October. That he, he had a, the Navy published that. Nobody really? else would touch it. So wow. and that you know at least now we have the options like The Martian can come out or Ready Player right. One. These are the, this is what indie does. You at least get the validation in the readers and you get something back. But yeah. I can you know. That's why it's such a, it, it is easy to be published now. And if you get any validation on that, so much the better. I mean, it would be nice if, you know, I mean, maybe eventually this book will catch on. Maybe it won't. I don't know. Maybe it's ahead of its time. Maybe it's past its time. I don't know. Still people who read it, but not enough because the new hotness is werewolves with one ear, you know, and that's what's selling at the moment. Right. So anyway, so Indie, Indie have offers that. I don't know how we got on that, but it's, I know I know you all, many of your listeners are indie. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a reason why a right. lot of really good authors, every author does this eventually. It, you, it, it, these gatekeepers are not infallible. Right, right. I agree. And yeah, it, it just gives everyone, like you said, it, there was a time when if you wrote something that was outside the norm, you had almost no chance of getting it really seen. And now you can have, you have an audience for anything 
absolutely anything you write. And that's nice, you know, to know. And I also think that even if someone's not into it now, I mean, it's very common where someone will write something and maybe it doesn't take off when you launch it, but five years down the road, suddenly it will, because maybe that's become more of a trend by then, or you know what I mean? That sort mm -hmm. of thing. So yeah, it, you, you can keep riding it. You can keep mm -hmm. going with it. It's uh, it's, you know, I, I'm just trying to figure out all the ins and outs of it still, because it seems very, it's, it's actually kind of exciting. It gives me some, it does give me a distraction when I can't write otherwise. I can say, oh, I'm still being a writer. Look at me. I'm doing research. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, well, being know, a writer gives you um, instant authority to do anything you want. I know, right? <laughs> All you have to do is say, oh, I'm writing a book on this. And people are like, oh yeah. Okay. Carry on. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. This plutonium is all about research. Right. <laughs> Really, officer, I have no idea. <laughs> How'd that get in my browser history? No yeah. idea. <laughs> Don't look at an author's browser history. We're all going to end up on FBI watch lists. <laughs> sure we already are. Always. <laughs> I mean, it's in a way. I just think it's. You know, we love these things. You know, I mean, yeah. it was abs writing as a as a spec. You know, as as we are. As you know, we're not one of these ten books. We'll tell you what to write later. We're writing on spec. Everything mm -hmm. is on spec. We we write it and hope we can sell it later. So. You got to love it. And if it doesn't get picked up, what are you going to do? You're just going to, I mean, Virginia Woolf said there's nothing sadder than a pile of unpublished manuscripts. Damn right. There isn't. Look at that. Oh, look at all this. You know, I've, like I say, I've written 20 books, only 10 have seen paper. <laughs> Those are fun. I love that. <laughs> I wrote a, a young adult with a, with a male protagonist. Mm. Oh, that's been a hard sell. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I didn't, make it I don't know. well and you know that, that's the kind of thing though that you probably should indie publish because when I first got started one of the first books I wrote was a historical romance sort of a thing and I wrote both from the female and the male perspective oh, you know both yeah. Uh -huh. and yeah everywhere that I shopped it um that was traditional they refused to publish it because part of it was from the male perspective but in indie that's very common it's there's lots of romance that are written both from the male and the female so your YA with the male, I, I bet there are other YAs with male protagonists out there, you know, and you could self-publish that and find an audience. So I'm definitely, I'm, I'm, it's kind of, it's taken a lot of the pressure off knowing mm -hmm. you have this other effective avenue. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I need to learn a lot more. I'm, I still <laughs> feel like I'm a baby in the woods. I've only been doing it a year, Yeah. Um, but um, I'm learning and it's, you know, it's publishing is not what it used to be. It's kind of interesting. No. Um, you think you have to have the paperback. You really don't. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. They always tell you, you should, you know, you quote unquote should have it available, but yeah, most people, they're not selling volume in paperbacks anymore. So no, no, I, that's, that's a good part. I've got uh, paper. I mean, Kings and Queens, Kings, Queens and Colonies, the one in November, I get a hardcover for that, but like I say, that's Simon Schuster, but right. the other books, you know, I mean, I, I have them out there. I spend all the time. I lay them out. I, I love them. I, I'm good at this kind of thing, but uh, you know, also, I'll sell, you know, a hundred ebooks for each paperback. Right, right. And, you know, you know. Well, um, where can people find all of your books? Well, um, I'm on Amazon, all of them. Uh, JohnnyWorthen.com, J-O-H-N-N-Y-W-O-R-T-H-E-N.com. I'm also with Johnny at JohnnyWorthen.com. Uh, there I have an events page. You can see what I'm doing. The classes I'm teaching up at the U, open to everyone, no grades, just learning. Uh, league events, uh, conventions, I'm going to Idaho, uh, going to Vegas, Quills is coming up in August. Uh, my book's coming out um, and uh, Amazon. So um, Johnny, johnnyworthen.com, johnnyworthen.com. Don't know what else to say. It's a, I do my own website because I'm a lazy man and people disappoint you. 
Anyway, <laughs> that's it. I don't know. <laughs> Just getting on as I can, right? <laughs> well, hey, if you've got 20 books written, I, I don't think that you qualify as a lazy writer anyway. You've got lots of writing, lots of stuff doing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, you, always hold, you always hold yourself to a higher, higher standard than you do, than you should. Yeah. I yeah. suck. I'm a ton of total. I got lucky. <laughs> Imposter syndrome never goes away. I, I heard an author tell me about that once. Says that you just level up. You get a New York Times bestseller. It doesn't mean you're over it. It means you've just leveled up. You've got a new level right. of imposter syndrome. I thought that was just exquisite. That yeah. was an exquisite descri description. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. This All has right. been a really, well, really I appreciate fun conversation. Being me again. Before you go, if you found value in this episode, I would love it if you could leave me a review. Reviews are the best way to show your appreciation and help others find this podcast. Be sure to screenshot it, share it on your favorite social media network, and tag me at LK Hill Books. Remember, the world needs your stories. Only you can change someone's heart with your fire-breathing dragons, your mind-blowing mysteries, your epic romances, and your intense thrillers. So join the revolution and be a prolific author. <laughs>